Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the second episode in our new series covering our generations issue. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Pete Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Carl Truman, and then with Susanna's husband of six months, Alistair Roberts, about the Bible's begats, and about marrying into Susanna's large family. Carl Truman is Professor of Humanities and Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College. Welcome, Carl. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And um, yeah, I just, I obviously I'd been excited to have you on for a while. And um, one of the things that, as I said, I'd um, like to talk about is just this question of whether the church needs to speak different things to different generations um, or whether, you know, the gospel obviously is one thing. And so we, should, we shouldn't worry too much about speaking different things to different generations. Uh, you kind of take both a theological and a philosophical and also a sociological tack in a lot of your writing. And so it, it kind of seemed to me that that might be something that um, you had given some thought to. Any general ideas? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good question. I mean, the, the origins of a lot of my work came out of the context when I was not only teaching at the seminary, but also pastoring a small church just outside of Philadelphia and becoming acutely aware that Young, the younger generation, and by younger generation, I, I suppose now it's kind of anybody under 35, I suppose. Uh, the younger generation simply didn't think in quite the same way that I did about things that I'd grown up assuming were obvious. And that, I think, does raise interesting questions, not so much about the content of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in terms of engaging young people, of getting them to pay attention, of getting them to realize that the message of the gospel is important, that it challenges them at key points, that is something that I think that has to be worked on by every generation. I think the key questions for me were in many ways very similar to the sort of question that Luther was asking in the 16th century. It's one of the reasons why I've always resonated with Luther. Uh, that question of, I know that uh, I, I, I'm convinced God exists, I'm convinced he's holy and righteous, and I'm convinced that in and of myself I am not able to stand before him in my own strength and expect anything other than wrath or judgment. So my, my questions were, were very traditional from that perspective. What I've noticed from uh, younger people, and particularly the kids I teach at Grove City College, is the questions now often focus around how can I be authentic? How can I be truly me? How can I find fulfillment? Now, I think the answer both to me and to this younger generation is one and the same. It's the gospel. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But the way you present the gospel or the way you get the students to think about the gospel today has to be a little different, I think. Um, I tend to play it in classes. You know, everybody wants to be free. We, we have the big thing today, intuitive desire to be free individuals. On the other hand, we also uh, understand or we also intuitively know that we need to belong. We need to have other people who acknowledge us as, as people of value in order for us to have self-worth. Freedom and belonging very hard to tie together because to belong is to sacrifice freedom. To be free in an absolute sense is not to belong. So how do we tie those two things together? And I found it quite fruitful in the class, not so much to zero in on, on the concept of sin, but to pick on Christ's language of if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Uh, if you're united to Christ, you are truly free. You talked in your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, um, a good deal about Philip Reef and the idea of the triumph of the therapeutic. 
Um, can you just go into that a little bit more, explain to listeners what that is? Yeah, the Reef, uh, he's a, he was actually a professor of sociology uh, officially at the University of Pennsylvania. And probably his most famous work is his 1966 book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, where he's trying there to, to wrestle with what is the good life? How do we conceptualize the good life after, after God in a, in a post-Christian or post-theist kind of world? And his answer is that what you get when, when the idea of external truth, objective truth, some sort of moral, objective moral framework to the universe collapses, then everything changes. And the whole notion of what it means to be a human being ceases to be learning the rules of the social game so you can fit in and becomes pursuing those things that give you a sense of psychological happiness. We could perhaps uh, make the, the point clear by drawing an obvious contrast between, say, well, say my education, English grammar school boy, even in the 1980s. Uh, when I went to school, uh, first thing we were told when we arrived at school was that none of us were of any particular importance whatsoever. Uh, we were uh, made to play team sports regularly. They were a core part of the curriculum. The purpose of grammar school education traditionally was to crush one's individuality and make you part of a team. And that very much comes out of a kind of culture where what is education? It's learning how to become a member of a broader clearly structured society, how to fulfill one's role in that. And that is where ultimately one finds one purpose and satisfaction. I am very struck today at the way colleges, and even Grove City College, which is a Christian liberal arts college, advertises itself this way. It's very much a sort of come to us and find your calling. Come to us and fulfill your unique potential. Uh, when you think about the shift in culture between those two things, uh, the one is very much focused upon the individual having to fit into a larger whole. The second is very much predicated on the idea of the individual finding what satisfies them as an individual. And Reef would say that second is symptomatic of what he calls the therapeutic society. And makes a number of interesting observations. One of the things he says in his analysis of the therapeutic society is, uh, the, 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 the institutions that society considers to be important will change when a society moves in this kind of therapeutic direction. Uh, under the old regime, he would say that uh, uh, the nation and the church or the nation and the religious institution would be important because they were the places where character was formed to allow you to fit in and belong in part of this, uh, to part of this larger whole. Today, he would say in the therapeutic society, that the theatre and the hospital become the dominant uh, institutions. Uh, why is that? Well, he would say nation and, and church, nation and religious institutions ultimately demand a sacrifice of the self. You are not the most important thing. There is something bigger than you that you're expected to sacrifice yourself to some extent for in certain situations. Once you lose sight of that larger understanding of reality, then everything comes down to whether, whether you feel happy at this particular point in time. Does it work for you? And so what a hospital and cinema, hospital and theatre do, uh, they take away your physical pain and they take away boredom. So Reeve in 1966 is predicting that uh, hospitals and, and theatres will become 
the dominant institutions in the therapeutic culture. And I don't have figures at my fingertips, but I'm pretty sure if you were to look at the amount of money that uh, the West spends on healthcare and on entertainment, it would be a huge part of the, the gross domestic product uh, of, uh, of most countries. One of the things that I'm uh, kind of curious about or interested in, in the way that um, people tend to talk about themselves in, I, I think, in the paradigm that you're that you're examining in that book, is there's a kind of um, tension between the self as something that you discover and the self as something that you create, and those those are actually you know in opposition to each other logically, but it seems like um, the way that people think of these selves that they are making or discovering um, kind of there's a very rapid back and forth um, in the way that people are talking about those those things is that accurate do you think absolutely I think the you know you, you, the whole idea of the self is very interesting on a number of levels in that one we, we do believe you know that we we create our own identities one of the odd things about the self of course is we we think we are sovereign individuals but our way of expressing ourselves is always socially conditioned. It's always dialogical with the, the world around us. So that's one of the sort of paradoxes of the notion of modern self. And I think the other one is the one you pointed to. There's a sense in which, yes, uh, we, we create ourselves, but we also discover ourselves. And you see some of this, I think, in the way that sexual identity politics has played out over the years, uh, that sometimes being gay is a given identity over which uh, the person has no control. Uh, at other times, uh, being gay is a, is a lifestyle choice. And politically, one has to be very careful as to which one is the mood of the moment as to how you talk about these things. But I think that reflects that, uh, that paradox that you're, you're pointing to, Susanna, that is, is fascinating. I'm curious, uh, Carl, do you see any positive sides of... Uh, the modern self and the way it's, uh, you know, the expressive individualism that you discuss in your book. Uh, I mean, it's, I think, quite easy. And on this podcast, we often have uh, talked about the, the ways that that can head in really unhelpful directions. Um, I'm kind of thinking of this famous C.S. Lewis quote about how every age has its own outlook and especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. And in terms of how how the church talks to this generation i'm just curious from your point of view you know having reflected on uh, on expressive individualism what wh what are the good things that are there yeah I, I think there are quite a quite a number of good things um one of the i mean if you go back to rousseau in, in the book i i i could have started earlier than rousseau but i I focus on Rousseau. I think one of the great things that Rousseau does, or, and those who sort of stand in, in his kind of tradition, is that they bring out the, the universal dignity of what it means to be a human being. That, you know, in, in a sense, one could look at the reformers and the medievals, and they, they certainly believe that everybody's made in the image of God. But the way that's practically articulated often doesn't reflect that. I mean, Calvin, I think, is in no doubt, yeah, we're all made in the image of God. But some people are just born better than others. You know, there's a there's a hierarchy he operates with. And I would say with with the, the, the foundations of expressive individualism in, in emphasizing the, the, the unique dignity and universal dignity of human beings, we certainly see a foundation laid down there for for respecting uh, 
people with Downs, for example. Uh, there are all kinds of great ethical results that, that come from, from that insight. Secondly, I think it's, it's true that we are, you know, we're not just brains on sticks, and expressive individualism captures that nicely by pointing to the, the importance of our, our emotions and our intuitions. I, I make the point to the students, you know, when, when Rousseau is talking about ethics, and I say, you know, he's not entirely wrong, because if you look out of the window and you see uh, a gang of hooligans uh, beating up uh, uh, you know, a little old lady or a little old man, and you don't feel something, then we have a word for you. We, we, you're a psychopath, and that's not a good thing to be. Uh, that Rousseau is, is definitely onto something when he sees the importance of the emotional inner space uh, of human beings. So those two things for definite. And I would say in the Christian church, I, again, I suppose I'm, I'm the product or the victim of my own buttoned up English grammar school background. You know, I'm not comfortable with a lot of expression of emotion in worship. But uh, the Psalms are full of emotions being expressed. Uh, I think there's, uh, there's a lot that expressive individualism uh, underscores that has been neglected in certain strands of the Christian tradition, including my own, the, the sort of reformed uh, Presbyterian one. The care and concern for the inner space, the acknowledgement that uh, our irrational, for want of a better term, our irrational feelings and emotions are an important part of who we are. That's something that expressive individualism uh, brings out. And there is a time when it's appropriate for to give outward expression to that which we feel inside, not in an uncontrolled or uh, uncorralled way at points, and not all the time. But I think the, the emphases one finds uh, in, in expressive individualism, no, they're not entirely bad at all. It's when they become the be-all and end-all. That's, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. And there's no, there's no countervailing, uh, there's no countervailing considerations. Yeah, I mean, I often think of, uh, I think it's um, Psalm 73, where the psalmist is wrestling with that inner agony. Why is it that the, the good die young and the, and the wicked prosper? And, and he's going through strong emotional feelings about this. And then it makes sense to him when he goes to the sanctuary. And ultimately, his, his inner turmoil needs to be set within the framework of God's revelation of himself. And I, I think that's a good way of balancing the, the legitimacy of the, the psalmist's inward emotional struggles on that point with the finality of, of God's revelation. There's also obviously, you know, Christ is quite down on hypocrisy. And I think yeah. at its best, authenticity is a kind of rejection of hypocrisy. And I've, I don't know if this is a legitimate biblical interpretation. I would have to ask my husband. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the bit in Revelation 2.17 where um, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. That's always struck me as a kind of, that, that idea of the stone with the new name that only you and God know, that just strikes me as a very kind of like an answer to the expressive individualist authenticity hunger um, in the context of God's own knowledge of you. I don't know if that's... You know. Yes, I'd have to ask Alistair that as well, I'm afraid, but sounds a very attractive interpretation. <laughs> we, should, we should call Alistair right now on the podcast should, and I clarify mean... this point. 
mean, and I'm sure all the patriarchalists out there are delighted that you would ask him to I explain know, that verse. I Suzanne, I, I refrain from comment on the, I will have to ask my husband. <laughs> My specific husband, although the husband, yeah, okay. Um, one of the things that has been um, kind of in the, I guess, chatter sphere recently is um, an idea which I think Aaron Wren came up with about six months ago now or something like that about um, the, the movement from what he called positive world to neutral world to negative world. And Susanna, we should just introduce Aaron for those who don't know him. He's sure. a yes. plow contributor. He writes uh, Substack, which I enjoy reading, and uh, he's written for a, a whole bunch of other p publications as well. I he also comes from a reformed kind of point of view, doesn't he? I think he's is he Lutheran? Oh, I, I don't know. Okay, ask Alistair. I know. Um, <laughs> anyway, so um, I'm not sure how much you've been tracking this this conversation, um, but his general idea seems to be that you know, at some point before. I think 1997 is the year that he, for some reason, gives. There was, we were in positive worlds. Like the, the world in general was generally positive towards Christianity. Like if you were Christian, that was all else being equal, a good thing. It was kind of a feather in your cap. It made you more respectable. And then up until like maybe four years ago, we were in what he calls neutral world. And we being, I'm not quite sure. Um, so that's kind of one of the issues that I have with it. But um, we being, I guess, the West or America or something like that. Um, and it's up until like four years ago, we were in neutral world where Christianity was neither positive nor negative. And then as of, I think around four years ago, he thinks we've entered negative world where being a Christian is, you know, something that means that you are likely to be less reliable, less respected, um, more suspect. Do you think that there's anything to this hypothesis or how would you read it? It seems to me what he's describing there is very similar to the in some ways the, the the kind of move from what Charles Taylor calls secular two to secular three where secular two you have this neutral public square where religion religious differences can be safely accommodated in the private sphere because there is sufficient agreement on for want of a better term public morality, or we might say the, the moral imagination of society, for it not to create tension between non-religious and religious communities, to a position in, in secular three, as, as Taylor calls it, where the, the public square has really uh, become highly contested along religious terms, because morality based upon religion is now being contested. And I, I do think we are in that kind of situation now. I, I put it in terms of the, the terms of recognition or the terms of membership in society are shifting in America now whereby things that uh, in the past would not have been issues or where uh, the consensus was broadly along the same lines as the, as the Christian uh, consensus. That's no longer the case. I may use different terminology to Wren, but I think he certainly putting his finger on a very significant shift in the culture that I think is going to have an impact upon Christians in their uh, professional lives and their lives in the public square. So I'm, I'm very conscious that even now I think uh, Christianity as a cultural force is far more important in America than it is in other parts of the world. And I also think it, it you know, 
Wren and to an extent myself on that front may well be uh, tracking along a, a distinctively Protestant path as well because chatting to Catholic friends they're experiencing the transformations that are taking place in society somewhat differently to to us Protestants. So, and I asked one friend uh, why he thought that was the case, and he said, "Well, we never thought we owned the country." And I think you know, if you imagine that you own the country, then having the country, as far as you're concerned, stolen from you is a much more serious and painful experience. And and I think connects some to the. I don't. Want, I know this is a touchy subject at the moment, but connects some to some of the strands of so-called Christian nationalism. That are emerging that that seem uh, that seem angry and belligerent to me. Yeah, I it's actually I've absolutely seen that myself, and it's actually really strange because, you know, hypothetically, Catholicism is the more uh, I don't know how you, imperial or well they they I mean they did a good job they did a good job owning Boston for a while. <laughs> I mean that's the thing. Even if you think of somewhere like Boston, Catholics were never. I mean, the Adamses weren't Catholics. Like, the people who actually owned Boston were Unitarians. The people who did the grunt work in Boston were Catholic. Okay, they did a good job of renting <laughs> they, Boston. They did a good job of um, renting Boston. <laughs> so how do we link these two conversations? That um, That's one thing I'm curious about, is to the extent that there is no doubt that there are many places in the United States, and then if you extend to Europe... Um, even more so, where this negative world that Aaron Wren describes is the case, where, you know, being uh, publicly Christian is um, not good for your social or career life, um, w with various degrees of severity of that. Um, how does that connect in to what we were talking before about how to preach the gospel to a generation so shaped by um, individualism and this desire for authenticity. I think the community is is going to be very, very important as we move forward. One, it's going to be very important for providing a strong environment for people who are being severely challenged in their day-to-day -day lives and their day-to-day -day careers relative to their faith. They're going to need strong community at church to support them. And secondly, I think strong community is something that young people find uh, very attractive. I think that online community is very thin. They're becoming aware of that. Most of the students at Grove, if not all of them, hate it the time of COVID when they could only come to class online. Uh, I think in the kind of hyper-individualized world we're living in, people are waking up to the fact that real, true, rich human relationships are important and irreplaceable and I think there could be a huge opportunity for the church here as a strong community to present a very attractive picture of what it means to be a Christian to the world out there. Now I'm a Presbyterian so I certainly don't want to downplay the actual preaching of the gospel uh, but I would say the first thing that churches need to do is be strong communities. That's going to give uh, a sort of a framework or a context in which the gospel I think could well be could well be intuitively attractive uh, to those who come. I mean, that's one thing that jumped out at me um, from uh, discussions with Aaron. I'm not sure how much he's written about this. Um, exactly what you said, this, you know, desire for community. You know, some years ago, Rod Dreher wrote this much-discussed book, The Benedict Option, um, and, and 
we've talked on this podcast about, you know, the limitations of, of framing this desire for community as either a Benedictine or an option or a retreat or anything else. But I, it does seem to me that, it, you know, a, a large part of the response to that book has to do with exactly that, this desire for community, for not just kind of propositional truth, but for a relationship, for a personal connection, for, you know, the church to be a, a human reality, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's very striking that Jesus himself says, you know, by this will all men know you, my disciples, by the love you have for each other. Clearly, Christ does not see uh, believing and belonging as uh, two separable things. We may be able to conceptually separate them in our minds, but they're clearly intimately connected in, in practical church life. So we need to think about how to make strong communities given the realities of the, the integrated world in which we now live. I, um, I have a kind of suspicion about what might be coming next in terms of uh, this kind of the, the, the progress from the hunger for authenticity and what the church might need to kind of um, be thinking about speaking into, I guess, the next generation, the upcoming generation. And it has to do with the uniqueness of people, um, the, the sort of uniqueness of human beings as against, for example, AI. Um, what is it? What is it that actually makes us different? Um, what, are, what is it that we're able to do? What is it that we are that is that makes us different than like a chatbot? That makes us different um, from an AI that can generate art, given lots of inputs. Um, and I think that I'm not quite sure how the church is going to go about handling it. Like, I'm not quite sure how you can approach that from anything other than a kind of metaphysical, highly abstract level. But it does seem to me that knowing ourselves in relationship to other people, um, as opposed to knowing ourselves primarily as things that can kind of look like chatbots as we, you know, message each other on the Internet, might be something, um, might be one way that that, that might be answered. Absolutely. I think, Susanna, you're putting your finger on what is the great, the great problem of our day, I think, is we're living in the midst of a, a crisis is an overworked word, but I do think we're living in the midst of a kind of anthropological crisis. The moment. What is man? I'm, I'm struck that I think next year, 2023, is the, the 80th anniversary of C.S. Lewis delivering the lectures that became the abolition of man. Uh, I reread them just a couple of weeks ago and was struck, particularly the final lecture on the abolition of man, how incredibly prescient those lectures are. It's it's a little bit like Reef's 1966 book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. There's no way Lewis could have known just how accurately he was speaking when he actually spoke. And I think you're absolutely right that uh, uh, I've not looked so much at artificial intelligence. My uh, the person that I've sort of zeroed in on a bit has been Peter Singer, relative, you know, human beings relative to other animals. But the same kind of thing applies because the, the bottom line is uh, once you repudiate the idea that human beings of all creatures on the face of the planet are made in the image of God, then everything goes. You can reduce us to the level of an animal or you can turn us into a cyborg. Uh, there are no givens that cannot be transgressed with impunity if, if, if you take that view. Uh, and 
Yeah, that's it's it's a very important point, and I think it's something that I've been encouraging my students, those thinking of going on to do postgraduate work, to you know, do postgraduate work in ethics, do postgraduate work on the ethical implications of how we understand what it means to be a human being, because I think these are the big questions that are facing us. I'm going to have to give a shout out to that hideous, that hideous Strength, which is the fictionalized version of The Abolition of Man. And those two are probably my two favorite Lewis's, other than maybe his autobiography. Um, but That Hideous Strength, which is the third uh, volume in his space trilogy, was basically a novelized version of the arguments in, in that book. And uh, just fantastic. Again, just incredibly, insanely prescient. Carl, thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure to speak to the two of you and, and just to thank you both for your work as well. I think it's, it's great that we have Christians from so many different traditions now focusing on really important issues for the rising generation. So thank you to, to Plough for, for all the work that you do. See you guys. Bye. Bye-bye. And now for a very special moment, we'll be speaking with Alistair Roberts. Alistair is a biblical theologian who works with the Davenant and Theophilus Institutes. And as of six months ago, he and Suzanne are married. So welcome, Alistair. Thank you for having me. Hi, Alistair. Hi. <laughs> now, Alistair's uh, written a wonderful piece for the issue called Decoding the Bible's Begats about genealogy and scripture. Um, I should introduce him first. Uh, Alistair Roberts received his PhD from Durham University and teaches for both the Theopolis Institute and the Davenant Institute. And he participates in the Mere Fidelity and Theopolis podcasts and uh, lives with Susanna, alternating between New York City and the United Kingdom. So uh, we're going to talk about genealogy and scripture and in general about the importance of genealogy and family lines and the kind of weird themes of uh, both affirmation and kind of relativizing of of family history, uh, of lineage. Um, but we're also going to talk, and I hope we can actually start about talking, with something that you mentioned at the beginning of your piece, Alistair, uh, which is what it's like to get married and go to a big family reunion of your new spouse's family. Um, so what was that like? I'm not sure I can speak to the more generic spirit experience of what that would be because <laughs> Susanna's family is a very particular sort of family, a large extended family that are very eccentric and have a very intense family culture. So it was really a delight. We went to Mystic and next to a lake, they have this old it's house. It's one step up from, well, in Connecticut, it has one step up from camping. It's more and... than one step up from camping, but it doesn't have any electricity. And so we light it with kerosene lamps. And so the kerosene lamp is actually the family's symbol. And several of my cousins have kerosene lamp tattoos, which is kind of uh, gives you some of some idea of what's going on with us. It is very intense. <laughs> and so there are um, bridge tournaments, there are um, all sorts of games, um, talent competitions, um, trying to think what else, a big lobster meal, which we helped prepare. And that was an experience. We had to pick up about 80 lobsters in Rhode Island and then travel back. I was in the back of... He was in the back. My brother was driving. It was my cousin's van. And Alistair was in the back with 80 live lobsters. And 
He just, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> a whole family of lobsters. I'm not sure they're all related, but yes, there was quite a number of them. <laughs> we also had a pig roast, like a large, large pig, um, which was kind of troubling uh, as a whole experience, but was very delicious. Um, and then there's like all kinds of, there, there's like a series of recitations that every family re so we have a family reunion every five years at a minimum and then we like gather you know informally at various every during the summer on other years and there's there's probably there weren't there were 67 people at this reunion um there were probably more like 100 when you get all of us together of direct like blood relatives um the in-laws i that i think that's including in-laws the in-laws call themselves the outlaws because there's a little bit of like there's a certain amount of hazing that you have to undergo when you when you marry uh -huh. a family. Okay. And Alistair was just a total mensch about it. Okay, he, was, he underwent the hazing and was initiated into uh yeah. into the wider family. So with this, Alistair, uh, you kind of entered into some of the th things that we've been talking about on this uh, series of podcasts, and we'll continue to talk about, you know, the specificity of each family and what it means to kind of join this intergenerational project, right? And there is something kind of amazing. I mean, I remember when he first got married, and I met uh, so, sometime later my wife's big family, right? She has, uh, I believe. I should know it's eight siblings, right? You don't know um, how many siblings in all my house. <laughs> well, I just had to do quick math in my head. Um, yeah, so there's lots of them, and there's lots of cousins, and you know, there's nephews and nieces and stuff, you know, flowering out from there. And what's really funny then is watching your kids grow up and kind of reflecting you know, the personalities and interests and quirks of sides of the family that you don't actually know that well, which maybe ties into the theme of genealogy, right? Um, I mean, you do tie it into the theme, Alistair, um, even though that might seem unlikely to get from the lobster bake to the first chapter of Matthew. Um, is there a connection there? Well, maybe not directly to the lobster bake, but there was a strong sense of genealogy. So there are the different lines of the family with different t-shirts, different colors for each side of the part of the family. And then you also have this family tapestry, which Susanna had to sew a leaf on for me because I'd been married since the last, we'd been married since the last reunion. So there is a very strong sense of becoming part of something that is much larger than yourself and part of a series of generations. So we're Gen 4 of five generations at this point from the initial founding um, parents. And that, I think, is also something that we see within the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. It begins with placing the story of Christ and his birth within the context of this larger genealogy and narrative. And there's one of the peculiar things about the genealogy itself is that the way that you were describing it to me as you were uh, writing this piece is that the genealogy is, it's almost a way of telling the story 
of who Jesus is and of almost the Old Testament um, in Nietzsche, sort of like, or like distilled down. And it kind of makes various points in the, um, especially the genealogy of Matthew as, um, as you sort of like see who is just, who Matthew decides to highlight in that genealogy. Do you want to talk about some of those? Yes. Um, so we might think about the very beginning of Matthew as similar to the previously on that you'd have at the beginning of the first episode of a new series or of a new season of a ongoing series on TV. So you've watched the previous series season and yet it's about a year ago now so you've forgotten what has happened and then you have this recap at the beginning of the new season that fills you in on what happened and gets you up to date and so you can watch the new series at that point, season at that point. And that's something very similar to what's going on in the beginning of Matthew. Matthew presents in a very brief sketch of the story in the form of this genealogy a sense of where things have gone to this point and then what's going to happen next he gives you a sense of anticipation it's introduced as the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham and the words there are important so the book of the genealogy is an expression that we have back in the book of genesis itself as we read through the Gospels, you'll often see at the beginning of the Gospels various allusions back to the very beginning of the Bible. So if you're reading the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, puts us back in the text of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there is a sense in which this is a retelling of the story of creation, but helping you to see what was there all along, um, Christ as the one who is the word ordering all things, the one by whom all things are created. You have something similar um, in the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel. Um, and it begins with those words which again draw our mind back to Genesis, the beginning. This is the initiation of what's going to take place. And the other thing that we see with Matthew is there is a sort of framing of the larger gospel in terms of the whole of the Old Testament canon. So it begins with Genesis, um, the book of the genealogy, and then it ends with an allusion back to the very last words of the book of Second Chronicles. So Second Chronicles ends with um, the command to return to the land. And it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now, that's very similar to what we have in the Great Commission. The return from exile is something that provides a pattern for thinking about the Great Commission. There is this new building of a church. There is this, the church corresponds to the temple. This authority that's given to this character Cyrus is um, similar to the authority that's given to Christ, but just on a far higher level. So Cyrus in the book of Isaiah is spoken of as a sort of messianic figure, but Christ is the greater Messiah, the one who's truly the anointed one, who's going to bring about the kingdom of, of God. So 
that way of framing the text gives us a sense of the whole book of Matthew as a retelling of the Old Testament in a way that helps us to see Christ summing up the history of what has happened to that point and condensing it and what has gone so badly wrong previously is going to be brought to its proper end in him. There's a sort of recapitulation as Irenaeus and other church fathers spoke about. So if you're reading through the story, you may be able to pick up some of the other beats. So if you're listening for the story of the Exodus, you can hear that at points such as the return, the return of Jesus and his family from Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son in chapter 2 verse 15. There are other Exodus allusions at the beginning. You have Magi coming from the east to the court of the king who's trying to kill the baby boys. It's a very similar sort of story but mixed up. So here the magicians, the Magi, are not actually the opponents. They're the people who are the faithful ones coming to the court of a king in Jerusalem rather than a king in Egypt. And the king in Jerusalem is the one that's trying to king, kill the one who's born king of the Jews. And then we have other allusions, for instance, in the 40 days in the wilderness and Jesus' temptation, or him teaching the people on the mountain as Moses taught the people on Mount Sinai. And then the climax, you can see allusions back to the story of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and that corresponds with Christ himself on the cross. So all of this gives us a way of seeing the way that Matthew is telling the story as part of his theological um, point. He's telling the story in such a way that it triggers the minds of his hearers to recognise that this is Israel's story brought to its climax. It's Israel's story recapitulated. This is what has happened before as it should have been. So how does the genealogy fit in with that project of Matthew's? So if you look through the genealogy, one of the things that you'll notice is there are certain names that are missed. There are certain names that are included that you might not expect to be included. So the first thing that many people point out are the women that are mentioned. If you were going to mention women within the story of the Old Testament, who would be the ones that come to mind? Well, perhaps you'd think... The matriarchs. Yes, you'd think of the matriarchs. You'd think of... Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel and Leah, these would be the ones that you would instantly think of. Then you'd maybe think of um, other key characters. You'd have Ruth and you'd have Miriam and other characters like that. Now, those characters are not all within the genealogy of our Lord. So, for instance, um, Rachel is not mentioned in this chapter because she's not part of Jesus' genealogy. Leah would have been. And then you wouldn't have... Um, Miriam or you wouldn't have other characters like that but the women that are mentioned here are Tamar, Ruth, um, Bathsheba and um, as you go through it you'll see that um, these are not necessarily the ones that you'd expect. What is it about these particular and Rahab? Why are these the women that are mentioned? What do they have in common? What are some of the things that set them apart? Now, as you look through it, it seems to me that one of the things is that they tend to be Gentiles. So Tamar is a Canaanite woman. Um, Rahab is another Canaanite woman. Um, Ruth is a Moabitess. 
And Bathsheba was formerly the wife of Uriah, who was a Hittite, again one of the people of the land. And in each of these cases, we see someone who is not automatically part of Israel, not necessarily born into Israel, or someone who was married to someone outside of Israel initially, being brought into the story. And as we go through the story of the New Testament, we'll see this is part of the point that there's going to be this bringing in of the Gentiles into the people of God. And as you go through as well and look at the junctures at which these women come, they come at points of crisis. So you can think about the story of Tamar. And as we look at that story, it's a very irregular, strange story. It's a story that stands in juxtaposition to the story of Joseph. But it's a story where we see a line descending into crisis, where Judah has lost his family, two of his sons. He's lost his wife. He's not giving Tamar to his youngest son, Sheila, his line is gradually withering and he himself has given over his um, signet ring and his cord and there's a sense in which this is like giving your passport and your driving license. These are tokens of his identity and significance and yet he's giving those up quite freely and so there's a great descent to a very low point for Judah. And then this intervention and out of that, his line is formed from which David will come. We see a similar thing in the story of Ruth. There is this intervention within a story of death. So there are again two sons who die, Malon and Kilion. And at that point, Naomi, having lost her husband and her two sons, wants to go back from the land of Moab where they've retreated for the um, famine in in Bethlehem and go back to her homeland just destitute and her two daughters-in-law accompany her and Orpah is sent back but Ruth continues with her she won't let her go and in the end Ruth raises up a child for this widow who seemed absolutely bereft and so again we see something of an intervention in a situation of crisis some form of mercy some form of um, redemptive action and event. You see a similar thing in the story of Bathsheba. So David's great sin with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He's killed Uriah, he's um, taken Bathsheba. And in that story, the first child that they have dies. But yet this other child is raised up and this child is Solomon, who will be the great king, the one who um, is in many ways the fullest flourishing, at least in the earlier part of his reign, of the kingdom of Israel. And then the other character, of course, is Rahab. Rahab, who sheltered the spies, a Canaanite woman who saved as the one survivor with her family of the land of the city of Jericho, which is the great initial um, city that's defeated in the land of Canaan. So in each of these points, there is a su surprising act of redemption or divine intervention into a story where it seems that everything is going to go wrong, where it seems that the line of David is about to be wiped out, or where it seems that he is someone who has no part in the story whatsoever, and yet they're going to be brought in and made part of it. So in this way, I think it's priming us for what's going to happen later on, that this is a story where God is going to raise up the seed of David. He's going to redeem 
his people. He's going to intervene in a history that seems lost. He's going to act when all seems to be going down to death. And we see that, of course, most fully in the resurrection of Christ, which is the rising up of the seed of David. But you also see it in the birth of Christ. And that's actually one of the things that was most interesting to me and most moving to me when I kind of was really thinking about it as you were writing this piece and we were talking about it. Because, you know, one of the surprising and weird things about Matthew's genealogy is that it ends with Joseph, the son of David. He's called the son of David, um, rather than with Mary. And Joseph is not Jesus's biological father. And I think it was Augustine who said, well, maybe it's also Mary's genealogy in some way, like they might have been related. And I can sort of see that maybe, but you, your explanation had to do more with the nature of everything that you've been talking about so far. Well, just in, even just to lean, before you answer that, I mean, it just strikes me, especially if you read the authorized version of this, um, it's that word beget, right, is repeated and repeated and repeated in this genealogy, the, emphasizing, you know, the biological nature of this begetting, right? This seed of David being passed on through the act of begetting. And then suddenly you get to the end, uh, and uh, and jo Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Suddenly the, the begats end. Yes, and... I think there are other oddities within this narrative that are worth paying attention to. So if we think back through certain genealogies, we can see that there will be oddities like that. Oddities that explain something of the differences between the two genealogies in Matthew and Luke. When we consider that two, there are maybe two different routes back through a family, when you consider the possibility of, first of all, um, leveret marriage, and second of all, Adoption. In a case of adoption, someone from another line of the family can be brought in. So you could tell their genealogy in different ways. You could tell their genealogy biologically or in terms of their um, legal status by virtue of adoption. And at the very end of the story, we have the one who is born of the in the city of David, the one who's born of the line of David, is not actually... Um, born through uh, the action of a man. This is not something that man could bring about. Just as we've seen in the story, hints of these situations where the line was dying out and the Lord acted redemptively. At the end, it's not something that arises from man's virility, man's strength, the um, vigor of David's own line. It arises from an act of the Holy Spirit. Uh, an act of the Holy Spirit giving a child to Mary who is betrothed to Joseph, not in order to, um, it's not just to Mary by herself and Joseph just happens to be on the side. No, it's given as um, a gift to Mary and Joseph and to Joseph as a descendant of David. So David is given a child, not from his own body, in the same way, but as a gift of God. He is, um, Christ as it were, is a son adopted into the line of, of David. And as you go back through the story, we might think about the character of Shealtiel as another character who is probably adopted from another line. And so he's made part of the line of Jeconiah, Jeconiah who was told that he would be childless, but yet 
through God's grace, he is given a son, an adopted son, through which his line can continue. And so I think what we have here is something similar. A line that has no strength or hope of its own is given the child. Unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. And that expectation of all the generations before is reached not through some power of the generation itself, some vigour of the family, but through an act of divine grace. That, I mean, when you said that, I sort of, it was sort of like a little explosion in my brain because it, it made me think, all right, when we want children, one of the things that I mean, obviously the desire for children is complicated, but one of the things that, especially in the Old Testament, it means is the continuing on of your name. It's a kind of immortality. And if you, we, if we think of Jesus being given to Joseph as his son, as his eldest son, who's going to carry on the family name, Jesus is given to Joseph as Joseph's immortality. And in that sense, like Jesus is given to all of us, not just as our brother, but also as our child in a way, as our, as our immortality. And that blew my mind. And that's definitely a theme within the Old Testament and picked up in the New. We might think about the way that in Isaiah we're told of the, um, the root of Jesse or the stump of David. This is the house of David cut down completely. It's wiped out, as it were, and it's now down below the stump. You just have the root of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. But out from that is going to arise this root out of dry ground where there was no hope previously. Something is growing up and that thing that's growing up will be the righteous branch, the one who is the Messiah. And in the psalm, David talks about his body not seeing corruption. And we might think, OK, that's David just talking about him being saved from some trial within his lifetime. But when that is preached on the day of Pentecost, Peter sees in that declaration in the psalm a promise that David's line would be raised up in resurrection, in that eternal life. And so we see that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whom the seed of David has risen up and has been brought to sit at heavenly places and all peoples being blessed on account of this son of David. So what we see, I think, in this story are all these intimations of the way that God acts within history, the way that he acts redemptively, the way that he brings people in, the way that um, there are acts of courageous faith by which the story is progressed. Think about the actions of Ruth particularly. And that gives us a sense of where this story is going. It's going to tell something very similar brought about by the work of God in Christ. There's a bunch of things, um, you know, s stepping back from what you're saying, Alistair, and, and what you've written here, uh, there's one very sort of basic observation, but maybe worth making, um, is that the, the New Testament and the Gospel of Matthew uh, starts by connecting Jesus so strongly back to the story of the people of Israel, right? That this is um, kind of the opposite of this idea that the New Testament floats free from all that bad stuff in the Old Testament. And it does that 
it does that by reminding us of the story. So at the very end of the genealogy, you have Jacob, the father of Joseph. And Joseph then goes on to have these dreams and he leads his people into Egypt to protect them um, from a crisis. And then you have a king trying to kill baby boys. You have in chapter two, um, the statement of um, the um, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And then the statement to Joseph in a dream that um, Herod has died, died those who um, sought the child's life are dead. It's the same thing that we have in the story of Moses in chapter four of Exodus. So it's reminding us of the story before, but there's also a sense of redemption going on. So if you look back through the Old Testament, one of the tragic stories that has repercussions all the way through is the story of Rachel. There's the occasion where they're fleeing from Laban after they're leaving um, Haran and going back to the land of Canaan. And as they're fleeing, he overtakes and he's searching for his household gods, the teraphim that have been left behind, that have been taken. And he doesn't know who, have ta who has taken them. And he looks through all of the different tents and doesn't find it, finally goes into the tent of Rachel and she's sick sitting upon the camel and beneath her in the saddlebag is the other teraphim. And she can't get up, she says, because she's on her period. Now, as we read through that story, we see that there's a tragic thing that takes place because there's a death sentence, as it were, cast by Jacob over the person whose possession is found. And as we go on through the story, there are ways in which that is echoed and there's a sense of the tragedy of Rachel. So she dies in childbirth, giving birth to her youngest son, Benjamin. Her oldest son, Joseph, is taken down into Egypt. And it, she, he's taken down by camels coming from Gilead. And that's where Gilead is where Laban had caught up with them. And a camel was what Rachel had been sitting upon. And there's a sense in which this is a callback to that tragic story, her son being taken down into the death of exile. And then later on, we have something similar. There is the pursuit for the instrument of divination, the um, cup of divination that's stolen, um, seemingly. And they search through all of the different um, sons of Jacob, and eventually it's found in the possession of the youngest, the youngest and seemingly the only remaining son of Rachel, Benjamin. And at that point, Judah interve intervenes and intercedes for Benjamin. But there's something very similar going on, and there's a sense that there's this tragedy in Rachel, that she loses her children. And then there's this awful verse in Jeremiah that speaks just of her, Rachel's horror and weeping and her sense of being distraught at the loss of her children. She's weeping because they're going into exile, they're being destroyed in um, the rout of Jerusalem. And yet there's this promise that her children will return, that um, there will be redemption for her children. And then there are other allusions that we find to the story of Rachel in places like um, the book of Micah in chapters four and five. And in Matthew chapter two, both of those stories are recalled. So we have Micah chapter four and five um, being recalled in the reference to Micah chapter five, verse two. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, not, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, 
for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All of that looks back to the story of Rachel. She had died in childbirth on the road to Bethlehem, but had not reached Bethlehem. So she's buried on the way to Bethlehem. We have a similar story calling back to Bethlehem and Rachel in the story of the Levite and his concubine in Judges chapter 19, one of the most tragic and horrific, just terrible stories of the Old Testament. And so there's this great tragedy, as it were, that has not been resolved. And in chapter 2, verse 16, we have another allusion back to that great verse in Jeremiah, the verse of um, Rachel's lament and sorrow. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And then after that, Herod dies and Christ returns from the land of Egypt and enters back. And he's going to be the child that's going to raise up this dead family, this family that has lost its children to exile, this family that has had tragedy hanging over it. And he's going to be the one that's going to redeem his people. That story then of the Old Testament summed up in this very elusive um, genealogy is setting the scene for this act that's God, that God is going to do. In Christ, he's going to raise up a dead people. He's going to fulfill his promises to the house of David. And he's going to establish them as a blessing to the nations and the restoration of all the breaches in that family itself. And through that, we see something of the healing of a family. Now, I think this is something we also should recognize as we're reading through something like the book of Genesis. The story of Genesis is not different episodes that happened to these people way back when. It's not just even episodes in the life of um, these great men of faith. It's stories of the intergenerational patterns and tragedies and redemption of a family. It's the family of Abraham over a number of different generations and seeing how the actions of one generation, the sins of one generation, the faithfulness of one generation has repercussions for the next. And as we go through the story, we see great acts of redemption that overcome some of the sins of the forefathers, overcome some of the breaches within the family, overcome some events of loss. You can think about the story of Joseph as a story of death and resurrection. Joseph, the sons that seem to be dead, is actually restored to his family once more and his family is saved from death. The whole story of Genesis is a story of resurrection that ends with the promise from Joseph that when they arise from Egypt, they will take his bones with them and bring his bones back to the land where at the very end of the book of Joshua, they are buried in the place of Shechem, which is where he was sent by his father and the place from which eventually he, he went to Dothan and then was taken down into Egypt. And so this whole story is one of redemption. And what we see in the Old Testament setting the scene, setting the patterns of God's behaviour is seen in its fullest expression and its climactic expression in the work of Christ, ending in the event of resurrection in the story of Matthew. Wow. Well, I, 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 I'm probably not alone among our listeners in having to confess that I, you know, often have skipped the first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I hope after listening to this episode, uh, I know I'll be reading 
those verses uh, in a different way. I would like to step back from this, though. We, you know, in a way, okay, Alistair, you know, I know you're a biblical scholar, and we we want to be a little irresponsible now. Um, <laughs> the because you know this is obviously a special genealogy it's the the family of abraham of david culminating in, in jesus christ so you, it is something special but you do uh say at the end of your piece um that the tragedy the overcoming of tragedy and the gift of fulfillment exemplified in david's line accomplished by the son of abraham perhaps uh, might be worked out in our family lines too. So I'd like to get into the, that question of our family lines. Like what can it tell us about uh, blood kinship, about uh, genealogy, descent, uh, how we think about our ancestors, the sins of our ancestors, um, pride in our ancestors, and uh, perhaps a different way. And let me set it up this way. Um, I live for sometime after our, our, our marriage in Dresden in Germany. And there's a famous wall on the castle of the former kings of Saxony there. Um, it's a mural that shows the genealogy of the house of Wettin, the royal house of Saxony, um, going all the way back, right? Um, and it's a, in a way very similar, right? It's telling the story of a royal line uh, but in a different way, because it's a story of this royal line's increasing power up until the early 20th century when the mural was made, of course, not long after, in 19, 1919, uh, they were overthrown and uh, the monarchy in Saxony was abolished. Uh, but at the time the mural was, was made, this was a piece of propaganda um, showing the glory of this house and its expanding, uh, you know, uh, power and prestige uh, with an increase in its titles, you know, up to attaining uh, kingship, you know, in the last couple of centuries. A and here, the, the story, the genealogy in Matthew, as you pointed out, is this story of fall and redemption uh, over and over again. It's a very different tone and tenor and different way of thinking about how one relates to one's ancestors, one's imperfect ancestors. Uh, am I hitting the mark at all? Yes, I think so. As we um, read the story of the Old Testament, it's not a hagiography. It's not a story that is airbrushing the lives of the people it describes. So it's one of the questions that people often have when they're reading something like the book of Samuel from a non-Christian perspective. Okay, what what party is this supposed to be serving? Obviously, some party within um, Judah wrote this in order to serve their particular party's propagandistic interests. Who could it be? I mean, is it the Davidic party? And then you get to the story of um, David and Bathsheba and the, just how horrific that is and how it leads to an unraveling of David's efficacy as a leader and opening up of old wounds. And you realize, well, maybe it's not the Davidic party. Maybe it's an anti-Davidic party. 
But then there's so much good about David within it. How does it fit? And it seems to me that this is a clue to the, the distinctive character of biblical history over against the sorts of histories that we often tell about our peoples and nations, which can be the airbrushed hagiographies, the stories that don't tell about the bad parts, that don't honestly wrestle with the skeletons in the closet. But in the story of scripture, we're constantly reading about the people's sins. We're constantly reading about what happens to them on account of their unfaithfulness, going into the land of Babylon, for instance, or the destruction of Jerusalem on various occasions. What we're seeing is an indication that this is a people whose significance is not found in themselves. It's not found in their own power, or it's not found in their own virility. It's not found in the sort of um, extent of this nation. They're not chosen, as Moses says, because they were larger or greater or more powerful than any other people. Indeed, they're one of the weakest of peoples. And yet God chose this wandering Aramean to be the one from whom he would raise up a people more numerous than the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. And this people would be a blessing to all nations. And it's a strange thing, again. Um, we tend to think about the destiny of peoples very much being for themselves. But yet this is a people who's a people not just for themselves, but also for all the nations. Their destiny is found in large part through bringing in and blessing all these peoples. And we have that at the very beginning in the references to the Gentile women that are brought in, um, the characters like Rahab or Tamar or Ruth. In each of these cases, we see someone who would not be part of the people of God were it not for this marriage. And in the case of the people of God more generally, so many of us are Gentile. We've been brought into a people that we do not, by nature, belong to. Paul talks about the natural branches and then those that are grafted in against nature. And we are those, for the most part, those branches that have been grafted in against nature. We're not necessarily... Speak for yourself. Pun? Speak for yourself. <laughs> We're not necessarily people who would be part of this in the same way otherwise. And so this story is one of, in large part, adoption. It's a story whereby we who have no natural stake are made by grace to have one. And that way of telling the story is very different from our ways of telling our national or our family stories, which tend to be so much about what sets our family apart. What is it about our family that makes it greater than other families in and of itself? And yet this is a family whose greatness is found in what God has done for them, in the history of God's redemption. Now, how does this relate to our families? Well, it seems when we tell our stories, we can often tell our stories, for instance, I grew up in a, um, a Baptist context where we would often tell our testimonies. And when you tell your testimony, you usually tell about your experience growing up, you tell about the time of your conversion and how that changed your life in various ways, and then give some sense of how things went on from that. But when we tell our um, testimonies, Often what we fail to do is consider the way that the Lord has been working in the lives of our families or the lives of people around us. And he does not just work in the lives of individuals. 
by themselves. He works with people, through other people. He works through networks of people. He works with some people upon other people. And there's this sense of the baggage that a family can have being dealt with in various places. So we can think about the story of Genesis, or we can think about the story of David as well, where David is often a character described as like Jacob. And yet he's like Jacob in good and bad ways. And so at certain points, he takes on the tragedy of Jacob, who lost his sons. He lost Judas, he went down from his brothers. He lost Reuben, as Reuben was unfaithful and slept with his concubine. He um, lost Joseph, of course, as Joseph seemed to die, um, being killed by this wild beast. And in that story of David, we have something very similar happening in the story of Absalom, where Absalom is like Simeon and Levi who kill or seem to kill in the case of Absalom all the sons of the king. We have Absalom like Judah who goes away from his brothers and goes into exile. We have Judah like Joseph who seemed to be dead. Um, Joseph seemed to be dead, Absalom dies and David mourns bitterly for him. He's never the same man after that. And in all of these callbacks we see that David bears the hallmarks of his forefather. Um, he's like Judah and he's like Jacob. And in the same way, we bear hallmarks of those who have come before us. Something of them lives on in us and something of us will live on in the people that come after us as our children and descendants. And the Lord works not just with us as individuals, but he works through families. And there's, I think, very good reason to pray for our children, to pray for those who have come before us, to pray for our parents and grandparents, to pray for the network of our families, that they would know something of God's grace and redemption as we have experienced it, that we would become channels by which God's grace might work, not just in individual lives, but within the network of family relationships, where there might be breaches, where there may might be tensions, where there might be antagonisms or grudges and um, things that go back maybe many generations. And the Lord can work in those sorts of things. And if we just focus upon individual stories, we can miss how much of the Old Testament is given to these intergenerational crises and intergenerational wounds that are dealt with as God's redemption deals not just with detached people, but with the larger story of a family that has gone wrong in so many ways and yet experiences the redemption of God. I think, I mean, one of the things that that makes me think of is just sort of, um, man, this really feels like sermon application moment, but I don't mean it that way. I mean, go for it. <laughs> you know, you just got, and, and, and with a homily for us, Susanna. Um, it just, well, I guess two things. One is that, um, asking yourself, what is the story that God is telling with your family? And what's the role that you're supposed to play in that story? Um, that's actually something that I think about a lot. I mean, I, as Alistair has said, I do have a large family with many stories and um, many lobsters, many lobsters, and thinking about what some of the stories that God has been telling through that family in, in the generations that came before me and how you know, the work and life that I have now is a carrying out of some of those stories. I mean, it very much is. I could 
go into this. Alistair knows all this, but I won't. Um, that's just, it's something to sort of think about. And then the other thing is, you know, if you don't have one of these big storied families, um, one thing to think about is just the incredible sort of, um, it could have been otherwiseness of everyone's birth. Um, you know, with with every generation, whether or not you know the story of the generations that came before you, with every generation, God was, you know, had his hand on each generation so that the next, you know, person who who was born would eventually, um, you know, through the generations become your parents. Whoever you are is the result of God's intentionality with really messy people just as much as it was in the Old Testament. And boy, this really does feel like sermon application, but I, I just, I think that there's something to be drawn from that as well. Well, that's an incredibly, you know, hopeful note to end on and that we are not standing alone, unconnected to human history, uh, but the good Lord works, you know, through the long scope of it and we're just part of it. Thank you so much for joining us, Alistair. And, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Go bless. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs bet and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, we'll be talking with writers Phil Christman and Joey Keegan about effective altruism and being a good ancestor, and with Dan and Jay Jagannathan of Columbia University about academic genealogies.